You're listening to the audio from Tuesday Night Class at CA Church, located in Coquitlam, British Columbia. We hope this teaching helps you grow in your personal relationship with Jesus Christ. All right, well, welcome. Welcome to week four. Welcome to week four, Al, of uh, this Christian. <laughs> How Christianity Saves Civilization. What's, what am I calling the class? Something like that. How Christianity Saves Civilization and Can Do So Again. We are on week four. And uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to tonight. Uh, actually, every every week, there's some really interesting things that we'll be looking at. Remember the big idea of this class. The big idea, it's important to keep it in front of us, is that the extraordinary impact of Christianity is seen in the fact that you don't notice it. It's the air that we breathe. You may be a follower of Jesus or you may not be, but many of the views that you hold about the nature of reality, what is right and what is wrong, how one ought to live, is actually shaped quite a bit by this event that took place 2,000 years ago. A person and an event. The person is Jesus Christ, and the event is his life, death, and resurrection. And so the Jesus revolution had an extraordinary impact on everything in this world, in all of human history. And I, and I think in every corner of the world. Actually, I, I, I would say without any hesitation that every part of this world has been impacted by this revolution that Jesus brought about. Now, we've looked at some interesting things. We looked at uh, the, the idea of equality. Where does this idea of equality, the inherent dignity of every human being, where does this come from? Where does the idea of human rights come from? Or where does that come from? Um, if you look inside, if you dissect a human being, you're not going to discover this thing called rights. So where does this idea of human rights come from? They are not self-evident. But instead, they're rooted in a biblical worldview, a biblical view of the imago Dei, that we are made in the image of God, and we are fearfully and wonderfully made. And then last week, we had a whole lot of fun talking about the Roman Empire and sex and the family and marriage and we looked at how many of the assumptions that uh, about what constitutes a family, what marriage ought to look like, and how sex is expressed, these, these ideas are not self-evident, but rather rooted in this Christian revolution. And uh, when placed alongside many of the practices and the assumptions about the Roman Empire, hearing Paul say the words, husbands, love your wives is nothing short of being revolutionary. Because I'll tell you, in the Roman Empire, it was not a call for husbands to love their wives. It's not like they didn't love their wives. But um, for a husband to, to think of his wife as a, uh, as a partner, as a companion on the journey, one for whom you would give up your own life, for their benefit, that that thinking that we take as, oh, that's what marks a good husband, would have been non-existent in the time. Now, there's another theme that I hope you're noticing that's emerging in this class. I'm going to hint at it tonight. And there's another theme that that is, um, it's a bit ominous, but it's starting to emerge. And this is the theme. Are we in our society beginning to revert to some of the assumptions that we found at play in the Roman Empire? Is there a reversion that's taking place? And if so, what does that mean for us? Okay. So tonight, we're going to carry on. Um, and we're going to look at two things tonight. Um, I'm, I'm being efficient. I'm going to put both both parts into our into our talk. I'm going to look at the dignity of work, how we understand work, and the appeal of humility. So, where do the assumptions that a lot of us have about work where do they come from? And should we really try to be humble 
when we're perfect in every way. <laughs> Some of you, most of you may not know that song. You know that song? Oh, Lord, it's hard to be humble. You're perfect in every way. We'll edit that part out. Uh, <laughs> all right, so we're going to begin with um, a passage in Exodus chapter 20, part of the Ten Commandments. We read these words in verse 8, where God says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Lord, we pray that you would speak to us tonight. That we, this, we really don't want this to be just about some ideas that we're talking about, but we want it to be transformative. And we pray that this would reach into our own walk with you and transform our day-to-day -day decisions and how we see this world and how we live in this world. So we commit tonight to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so I'm going to give you a fun question because I always give you really intense questions. This is a fun question. Now, I just want you to turn to your neighbors. So just two of you don't spend a lot of time on this, but it's just kind of fun. I'm going to give you a few minutes to talk about this question. What was your best job or what was your worst job and what made it so? So you can choose one. What was your worst job or what was your best job? And then what made it that way? Okay, so just speak to your neighbor and I'll give you a few minutes to talk about this. And then Jonathan, you'll pause this, right? Good. Let me just recap a little bit. <laughs> I was wondering about that. It's like, anyhow, we we're talking about um, slavery in the Roman Empire and that uh, most slaves came from the conquered, conquered nations. Uh, within any um, Roman city, about up to one-third of the population would be made up of slaves. Uh, significant labor force, but is also significant fear that a lot of the leaders had that these slaves would somehow work together and rise up against the freemen of the empire. Slaves didn't have a lot of rights. If you're living in the, if you're working in a silver mine, that was not good. You're You're likely to die. Apparently, the average age of a person dying if you're working in like one of the mines was, it was 25 years old, 25 years old. Um, but there was hope that sometimes, sometimes a slave would be able to earn enough money to buy um, themselves essentially and become free. Now, even though technically the money that they would earn belonged to their owners, you could buy your freedom. And if you bought your freedom, then your children would actually be free as well. And uh, though there would be a stigma if you came out of slavery and, and other kids would pick on you because you 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 were part of, your, your dad was a slave, a former slave. Some slaves had a certain amount of freedom to move around. I learned this week that, um, that Clement of Rome, uh, the, uh, the Bishop of Rome, um, he may have been a slave while also serving as a bishop. But that's about all the good things we could say about the life of a slave in the Roman Empire. It was not good. Not a lot that's positive. Uh, for a huge percentage of slaves, life was miserable. If you were injured at work, which has likely happened, um, what could often happen to you is that you were cast out. And if you're cast out, um, then likely you would starve and die. Legally, slaves are property. They were living tools. And so a slave owner could beat or torture his slave for any reason or for no reason whatsoever. An owner could rape a slave at any time in any manner. Their lives were in the slave owner's hands. And if an owner felt that his slave had done something wrong and was deserving of death, 
the slave owner would kill his slave, could do so. And, and, and then there, and there's this really strange law as well, that um, a slave, their testimony was not admissible in court unless they were first tortured. Isn't that strange? If a slave was tortured, then what they said under torture could be admissible in law, in a court, in court. So slaves were disposable. When slaves grew old or got sick, slave owners like the famous Roman gentleman, Cato the Elder, would just throw them out to die. In the end, most slave owners, slave owners didn't really care what their slaves thought or felt, but their primary value was what? Work. Was how they worked. Okay, so the, I just wanted to paint you that picture because this is the air that you breathe in this time period. And so with this in mind, listen to Paul's words. There's neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Like when you hear that, in light of the background, it really pops, doesn't it? The other one is, is, is think about um, a book that a lot of people don't read in the New Testament, the book of Philemon. And the book of Philemon, actually, um, the biblical scholar N.T. Wright says it's the most, one of the most explosive books in the entire New Testament. It's, it's just a short thing, right? Because listen to what Paul says. Paul writes in, in the book of Philemon, he says, For this perhaps is why he, he's referring to Onesimus, who is a slave, a runaway slave. For this perhaps is why Onesimus was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you? both in the flesh and in the Lord. Wow. With this background, what a thing to say. Receive this slave back, this runaway slave, who you have perfect right to kill, because he's a runaway slave. If not kill, to brand. Paul says, no. I remember somebody describing it. Imagine Onesimus coming back, and Philemon seeing him. And then Onesimus saying, before you do anything, read this. And it's in this passage, plus others, where you have the very seeds of the abolition of slavery. Slaves are not living tools, but in Christ, they are brothers and sisters adopted into God's family. Now, I want to shift gears from slavery to work, specifically to work, because how was work viewed in the Roman Empire? Well, if you were an elite, if you were in an upper echelon in society, you looked down on work. Work was something that was done by the labor force. And a good portion of the labor force were slaves. And so you have uh, Plato's famous... Um, structure of society where at the top you'd have the philosopher kings and then you have you know maybe soldiers military and then at the bottom you would have merchants who actually work and then you have slaves but it's interesting in the in the days before the roman empire rome was a re was republic um, and if you were living in the roman republic um, and you are an elite person, if you're in the upper echelons of society, you had an important role still in society. What would you do? Well, it was expected that if you were an aristocrat, you should use your leisure time for good purposes. And what were those good purposes? You should use your leisure time to actually help in the running of the Republic. And so you would hold specific offices to help the Republic run well. <laughs> and so these guys were typically quite smart, quite educated. And so, and the expectation is the, the elite in society would help run the Republic. The problem is, 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 is that they didn't do a very good job. 
And so those who made up, you know, let's say even the Roman Senate or different consuls or whatever, they, 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 they didn't do a very good job. And I know in our day and age in Canada, it's hard to imagine a Senate that was useless, but um, so what happens is that these guys, they make a mess of things. And the and the the republic is quite unstable, and it's not until the the emperor Augustus comes along and and takes the reign of power um, that things begin to change. Now Augustus is the emperor under, um, under which you know Jesus is born and during his his uh, his reign. And so what happens is is the empire goes from being or the uh, the Roman world goes from being a republic to an empire. And to help get your head around this, in terms of how things change, think of the amazing efficiency that Darth Vader brought to the galaxy when it goes from a republic to an empire, right? You guys remember that, right? Now, the emperor held full power, because he had full, full power, what happened to the Senate? What happened to the elite class? Well, they kept their positions, but they actually had very little to do. And so Roman consuls were essentially replaced by the Praetorian Guard, the emperor's secret police, who actually carried out most of the running of the empire. And so what happens is you have this vision of, a, of being a gentleman um, for the benefit of society. All this is, is, is removed. And so you had all these guys who were elite and had these positions, but they're basically empty. They're token positions. They, they had nothing to do. They actually weren't running anything. And so as a result, they had a lot of free time. And so what would these guys do? Nothing. There's no business to take care of. And so this is a time where you just see... Um, you know, entire class of people spending their days doing nothing, whiling away the days and days by having um, dinner parties that went on for days. It's a time of orgies, a lot of drinking, fornication, debauchery, exotic um, luxuries were brought away, were brought in from faraway lands. Um, it's a time period of a lot of adultery. People would enter into a lot of adulterous relationships trying to spice up a very boring life. Because there's nothing for them to do. And so you may as well just get hammered. Now, you know what I thought of this week? I thought about, you know, when COVID happened and so many jobs were shut down and yet a lot of people still would receive um, serve money or different money from the government. And I'm not making a comment about that, but I do know that there's, there's a lot of people who really struggled not working, but they had money, and a lot of this money just went, went to Amazon, yes. Yes, it went to Amazon, exactly. That's true. Now, we look at this, and we suggest, oh, man, these Romans, you know, instead of just having orgies and these, these long dinner parties, they should have looked for meaningful work. But here's the thing. The one thing a Roman gentleman would never consider doing would be work. And that's why you often see these stories of, of slaves who knew how to work being set free, and they continued to work, and they became incredibly wealthy. Where you have these elites, these gentlemen, and they just go into debt, and they just squander away whatever they have. And so the idea of work for, 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 for see, in the, in the Roman world, the ideal is idleness. The ideal is, is, is not not to be working, especially with your hands. But then you contrast this 
with Christianity? How did Christians view work? Well, we read in 2 Thessalonians, Paul writes, for you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us. We were not idle when we were with you. We did not eat anyone, uh, anyone's bread without paying, but with toil and labor, we worked night and day that we may not be a burden to any of you. It was not because uh, we had not that right, but to give you um, in our conduct an example to imitate. And it's the fact that, you know, Christians were glad to work. Now, it could also be indicative of, 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 the, of the class that a lot of Christians begin to um, emerge uh, out of. But it's the very fact that Christians worked that made so many Roman philosophers look down on Christianity. So one of the guys with the sharpest pen, and I've introduced you to him in, in the past, is, is this fellow um, Celsus. And Celsus, um, he's quite funny, uh, but he's, he's brutal. He's a, the Christopher Hitchens of the ancient world. He was very sharp. And he says, I hate these Christians. What are these Christians? They are a bunch of wool weavers, shoemakers, laundry workers, and the most illiterate and rustic men who dare not say anything in the presence of the more elderly and wiser fathers of families. So these guys, are, they're workers. What possible valuable thing could they say in the presence of us, of the elite? And to Celsus, how could people who are made up of stupid women, this is Celsus's word, children, shoemakers, cleaners, weavers, how could they make their faith anything but contemptible? I mean, honestly, if you're a worker, if you're a laborer, how wise could you possibly be? That's what Celsus is saying. And, and, and the other thing is, a lot of the Romans would say, you know, these these Christians or, 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 or Jews, they're lazy. They're lazy because you know what? They even want a day off every week. Meanwhile, there's enough Roman holidays to outnumber Sabbath days. But the, the reality is, is that the early church was a strange thing to the Greco-Roman world because the church was made up of slaves, barbarians, the elite, the poor, women, family leaders, soldiers. They treated each other as equals. They believed that the ground was level at the foot of the cross. And for Christians, they say, you know, part of being human means you and I are called to work. That's part of being human. To work is to be human. And they knew this from their Bible. They knew this, especially from, from the Hebrew Scriptures. It was part of, part of the human condition. I mean, didn't Adam, didn't Adam and Eve, didn't they work the garden? This is even before the fall. They were, they were working the garden. Adam was a gardener. David was a shepherd. God labored, created the world before resting. And in the Bible, we, we, we talk a lot about Sabbath, but you have to realize Sabbath is intimately connected to the call to work. We often just talk about Sabbath, but it says six days you shall what? You shall work. And so rest and work are woven into the very fabric of reality. And so if you're a ditch digger, by working, you would think, hey, by working, I'm connected to the creator of heaven and earth who also works. God works, and so I work. No matter what your work may be, when you work, what you do, you are partnering with God and creation. And Paul says, you know, we labor with our own hands. And if you refuse to work, you're not acting like a Christ follower. Now, let me just ask you, which image, which, which, which way of thinking do we see more in our culture today in the West? 
Do we see more of the uh, Roman idea that the ideal is leisure? <laughs> or do we see the ideal is work? Something to think about. I mean, it is interesting, in, in, uh, without going into this in, in too much detail, but I do notice a trend in the West to really reduce how much work we have to do. And in, in the name of, you know, it's uh, our overall health, um, healthy relationships, uh, or whatever it happens to be. But there is this downplaying of work and an emphasis on rest and having time, free time. And I wonder whether or not no, I don't wonder. I, do, I don't think that that is actually helping us as human beings. It's important to have healthy rhythms of work and rest. Absolutely. But is the goal not work? Is the goal of life to not work? <laughs> Retirement. Okay, so, so, okay, let me ask that because that's, that's my next question. And, and by the way, we will discuss all these things and more this Saturday at our Faith and Work Conference. Right, Paul? Yes. So, and I know many of you are coming, and now many of you who weren't coming are saying, I will be there. So sign up in the next few days. Okay. Um, but it is true. We are going to be talking about some of these things. So, I mean, let me just throw this out there for fun. Given what we understand about the importance of work, what does retirement look like for a Christ follower? Oh, oh you know what? This is going to be fun. Take a moment and talk among yourselves. What does retirement, what ought it look like for a follower of Jesus Christ? What should retirement look like? Okay. Okay, so um, let me uh, let me hear from a couple of you. What what does retirement look like from a Christian perspective? We want to speak speak into that. Some people online were saying that whatever you you have to stay active and you have to keep doing things that are meaningful. That is absolutely key. So it's not just stopping. It's 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 a shift, right? Yeah, Keenan. Right, so working for charity, uh, working on relationships, working on things that will be, bring benefit to society is, is a picture, yeah. That's right. Yeah. Absolutely, I, I think, um, I think the whole um, demographic of people who are retired are an incredible workforce actually that can do incredible things and this is something that um a fellow at region college james houston has written about and talked about is the is is he calls it uh, the, the missing demographic in in our world today like in terms of, of being um, quite productive and having an impact yeah yeah Keep being productive. It will change because I've heard that when you get old, you kind of slow down. Some of you guys can tell me about that. No. <laughs> I've read that in a book somewhere. Yeah. Uh, yeah, mission strips. Yeah, that's another one. Yeah. It is interesting. I mean, I remember uh, Bruce Walke um, doing a... Um, gave a talk once he's an old testament commentator and he gave a talk and he says warnings about retirement 
through the life of Isaac. Because if you ever read the book of Genesis, and if you want to see something, a, a warning, look at Isaac at the end of his life, who cares more about yummy food than about the promise that was given to his dad. And he says, Isaac is a warning for us. So Christians, they saw, am I echoing here? Jonathan? Yeah. It just it sounds a little echoey. Guys online, is it echoey at all? No? You're okay? Thumbs up, thumbs down? Thumbs up? Okay, good. Um, Christians saw the laborer some, as someone to be honored. And we must see this, too, because who is our model is our model is our Lord, who was the son of a carpenter and a carpenter himself. And so active work is something that is honorable and connected to the dignity and calling of God. God worked for us, and we should work for God for the benefit of others. But this idea of work that, you know, we, we talk about just the dignity of work and um, the importance of work and, and, and our call to, to reflect God by working and having a rhythm of work and rest, rest and work, really is um, not the understanding of, of, it wasn't the air that people breathed at different times, certainly within the, within the Greco-Roman world, which saw the goal of life was leisure and not work. Now, I want to shift gears, and I want to look at um, the, this idea of humility. Now, I want to point out, as I always do, a really good book. Oh, is this a good book. And much of what I'm saying, I'm just, just drawing from John Dixon, who's a historian, biblical scholar, Australian. Um, the book is called Humilitas, The Lost Key to Life, love and leadership it's a fantastic book very readable um and he's going to talk about uh, he talks about humility and so much of what i'm going to be talking about is drawing from dixon's book who is the most humble person you've ever met but that you've ever met pastor mark yeah yeah he would be certainly up there Okay, imagine, keep it in your mind, who the most humble person is that you've ever met. What is it? What are the characteristics that make him or her humble? What are some of the characteristics? Yeah. Not being materialistic? Is that what? Yeah, not being material. That's interesting. Good, yeah. Paul. So when you talk to someone who's humble, their focus is on you and not themselves. Yeah, on other people. Good. Authentic. Yeah, a humble person is authentic. Listening and not judging. Grateful. Displays love. Empowerment. Mentoring. That's good. Yeah, Brian. Shares wisdom and experience with us. Yeah, absolutely. Now, when you think of a humble person, are you drawn to them? Of course. I remember uh, years ago when I was uh, working in Omaha, Nebraska, um, I was working at a church. I've, I've shared this story before, but uh, I was just a young guy at the time, and I was interning at this huge church in Omaha. And I was with a buddy of mine, and he was also an intern. And these older guys um, invited us to a prayer meeting. And um, we, we said, well, what time is the prayer meeting? Well, 6 a.m. on a Saturday. I'm like, oh. well, I guess we asked. We better go. <laughs> and so we said, all right, we're going to go. And so we went. And um, these all these old guys, and they had their prayer list. And they're, oh, look, you know, two young guys, two young whippersnappers have joined us. Oh, that's good. And so they're all happy that we were there. And we're like, oh, this is good. And so we said, well, what do we do? And they, and they said, well, we just pray. All right. And so I said, well, let's, let's pray. And so we just, I, so my friend uh, Eric and I, we just closed our eyes. And, and then we heard all this creaking. 
I'm like, what? It's going on. And we opened our eyes, and every one of the guys was getting down on their knees. And they're all in their 90s. And one of the guys, his name was Les. And, uh, and he could barely see. And so that what they would do, uh, they would photocopy the prayer list and put it on huge, huge font so he could read it. And even then, he needed his magnifying glass. And I remember talking to Les about something that I was learning in the Bible. And now Les... He knew the Bible inside and out. And I, and, I, and I was a fairly new Christian at the time. And I was like, yeah, let's, this is what I've been learning. And uh, I remember him looking at me. He goes, wow. He goes, that's, uh, that's really good. He goes, I haven't thought about that. And I want to thank you for sharing that with me. And I'll never forget that because there's such a genuine humility in this man. And I, I looked at him and I thought, man, that's, that's, that's who I want to be like. There's something that was so winsome about him. Now, one of the qualities that I would say in our culture that we admire is humility. Would you agree? Like humility is, is actually a good thing. Um, we talk about famous people and we say, hey, even though she's really famous, she's really down to earth. And that's a good thing, right? She's very humble. And everyone admires a humble person. <laughs> but here's the question. Has that always been the case? Is humility a universal virtue that has always been admired and lifted up? I don't think so. In fact, in Latin and Greek, the words that pertain to humility are the words humilitas and arate. And they are important to us now, but humility in the ancient world factored in very little. What mattered more in the ancient world was another Greek word, misphilotimia, which means to love honor. Now, we talked about this last week, but the Greco-Roman world was an honor-shame culture. The vertical dimension of sin and guilt is not there. It's actually introduced by, by this Christian revolution. The, um, in the Greco-Roman world, what matters most is these horizontal themes of... Um, of honor and shame. Honor was seen as a necessity. It was important to have honor in the Greco-Roman world. If you lacked honor, if you lacked honor, you had shame. It was like a zero-sum game kind of thing. And so as much of your day-to-day -day life would be about doing what? Accruing honor and reducing shame. And so if you were a father and you looked at your son, what would you want in your son? You'd look in your son's eyes. Would you want your son to be happy? It didn't matter if he was happy. What you wanted is you wanted your son to bring honor to your family. Now, some of you here are from Eastern cultures. And you get that, because this idea of honor runs really deep, and it's still there, as well as shame. So honor was achieved not so much by doing good deeds, but by doing things in a way that would bring respect and praise from society. Now, it doesn't mean that good qualities didn't matter. Good qualities did matter. If you're a person of justice, that was good, for sure. But the point is, is... You're not so much driving after justice as you're driving after justice so that you can get honor. And the other side of things, the greatest fear was shame, especially public shame. Now, again, and for you, for those of you who are from Eastern cultures, you know this. Like in, in, when I lived in China, the, uh, the idea of jiumianzi, uh, um, losing face, was huge. You would not want to lose face. I remember working for a company, and uh, we were an engineering company, and we're all sitting around with all the leaders of the company trying to win them over, wind them and dine them so that they'll sign a contract with us. Okay? 
And so we're doing that. We're doing a good job, but we, we neglected one of the guys at the table. And uh, he was a Japanese fellow. He was a Japanese um, engineer with this company. And we, you know, we're so busy talking to everybody, we, we accidentally neglected him. And he felt so much shame that he actually sabotaged the contract. Yeah. Because we didn't, we didn't give him face. We didn't give him honor. So honor was achieved. Um, and shame, shame was something that you would want to avoid. And so we talked about this last week, but a, a Roman husband whose wife was having an affair would bring shame upon the husband. Was it the fact that, oh, you know, his wife is, uh, you know, betraying their love? No, it's not so much that. I mean, there might, might have been, he was sad because they, they thought they, you know, they loved each other. But it's more the fact that by her having an affair, it brought shame to the paterfamilias, to the head of the household. Aristotle writes, honor and reputation are among the, pleasant, uh, the pleasantest things. Through each person's imagining that he has the qualities of an important person, and all the more so when others say so. So it's really important to think you're, you're an important person. It's even more important. It's even better when other people say how important you are. So what is honor? Honor is a sign of a reputation for doing good, according to Aristotle. And benefactors, above all, are justly honored. Although one with the potential of doing good is also honored, the components of honor are sacrifices mating for the, for the benefactor after death, memorial inscriptions and verse, verse and prose. So Aristotle is saying, what matters most is to be honored. Even after you're dead, if people write poems about you and erect statues in your name, that is what life is all about. In the Delphic Canon, 6th century BC, it was a, an authoritative list of what, what the, um, uh, an ethical character ought to look like, a moral character. And these are some of the things on the list. And nowhere on the list is humility. What are some of the things on, on the list? Well, to be a moral character means you control yourself. Okay? To be a moral character is you help your friends. You practice prudence. You return a favor. Nothing to excess. Like, don't go, go crazy on things. Act on knowledge. Honor good people. Don't curse your sons. Rule your wife. Rule your wife. You notice that, yeah. Meet out justice. Despise no one. Worship divinity. Don't mock the dead. Don't let your reputation go. Respect the elder. Respect yourself, R-E-S-P-E-C-T. Um, die for your country and don't trust fortune. Now, some of these are really good. But the point is, is that you don't come across humility as a characteristic that you should aim, aim towards. To be humble, to be brought low, was a liability, was a weakness. It reflected an inability, a refusal to make a case for your merit. And to Aristotle, one who was, um, one who was humble was, was weak, was wimpy. Now, of course, you should be humble towards the emperors and the gods, of course, because they can kill you. But you would not be humble to appear, or certainly you wouldn't be humble towards someone below your station. And so one of the things that would be just a very normal way of living in the Greco-Roman world was to live in such a way that you elevated yourself. And so there would be a place for boasting, proper boasting, not narcissism, but proper boasting. But let me ask you this, how do we see the boastful in our culture today? It's always negative. You know, I watched this, uh, I watched this video on the internet, um, and it was, this, uh, it was this basketball game. 
and uh, it has this one guy who's playing basketball and, and, and this other guy. And the other guy's just trash talking. They're just kids, like 14-year-old kids. So the one kid would be dribbling the ball and the other kid would just be yelling in his face and trash talking, trash talking. And the kid who was quiet, he'd just dribble down, score. And then the other guy would come back and he would score, but then trash talk, hey, look at me, look at me. And, but over time, the quiet guy never said a word won the game and of course everybody's like yes because to be boastful um that's not good everyone loves a humble person nobody likes the boastful right right <laughs> you admire the kardashians well i don't i don't know anything about them are they humble people <laughs> I think there's a whole other thing going on there, and that is um, the idea of um, of living someone else's life. I think there's I think there's something else going on there. But here's the thing: this idea of being boastful, being bad, humble, being good, was not a given in history. In the Greco-Roman world, that wasn't the case at all. The Greeks and the Romans thought nothing of praising themselves in public. They would praise themselves in public. Now, they wouldn't be annoying about it, but they would praise themselves. And it was better if I could get, you know, Gerda, if you could say some good words about me, it's better, of course, to have other people say good things about you. But it was perfectly fine for you to say good things. And so that's something to pay attention to. In fact, oh, we, we lost... Uh, Okay, that's, that's fine. Are you guys still online? Yes, thumbs up. Okay. Jonathan, we're okay? Okay, then we'll carry on. Um, let me give you an example of this. I thought it was quite interesting. Our, our, our buddy, our, our good friend, Caesar Augustus, we've encountered him a few times. Caesar Augustus penned this description of himself. Now, he was a humble guy. It, his description of himself only ran for 2,500 words. Um, but he walks the reader through many of his accomplishments. Well, 35 to be, to be exact. And here's a taste. Here's a taste of Caesar Augustus describing himself. At the age of 19, on my own initiative, at my own expense, I raised an army by means of which I restored liberty to the republic which had been oppressed by the tyranny of a faction, for which service the Senate, with complimentary resolutions, enrolled me in its order. Okay, good, good for you. By decree of the Senate, my name was included in a hymn, and it was enacted by law that my person should be sacred in perpetuity. So long as I lived, I should hold this power. So what he's, one of the things that we know about Augustus is that he saw himself as being so important that he's, he's kind of, not kind of. He is a god. And should be treated as one. At the same time, by decree of the Senate, part of the, the praetors and the uh, tribunes of the people, together with this other fellow and the leading men of the state, were sent to meet me, an honor which up to present time has been decreed to no one except myself. <laughs> right? To the Roman plebs, I paid out 300 sesteries per man in accordance with the will of my father. And in my own name, in the fifth consulship, I gave 400 sesteries apiece from the spoils of war. A second time, moreover, my 10th consulship, I paid out of my own patrimony 400 sesteries per man by way of bounty. I'm just a, quite a generous fellow. I freed the sea from pirates, by the way. About 30,000 slaves captured in that war who had run away from their masters and had taken up arms against the Republic, I delivered their masters for punishment. So he's done pretty good. In my six and seven consulships, when I extinguished, this, extinguished the flames of civil war after receiving by universal consent the absolute control of affairs, I transferred the Republic from my own control to the will of the Senate. Oh, did you? Um, for this service on my part, I was given the title of Augustus by decree of the Senate. And the doorposts of my house were covered with laurels by public act. Aww. And a civil crown was fixed above my door, and a golden shield was placed 
whose inscription testified that the Senate and the Roman people gave me this recognition of my valor, my clemency, my justice, and, by the way, my piety. And it goes on and on and on and on. Now, this was very common. And so to praise yourself or to get other people to praise yourself was a good thing. It was a good thing. To avoid shame was a good thing. So now, what's the million-dollar question? What happened? How did we go from this kind of honor and boasting to valuing humility? How did culture change from prizing public honor, despising lowering yourself before an equal, to a place where humility was viewed as a virtue? Well, this is what our man John Dixon says. He says, the modern Western fondness of humility almost certainly derives from a peculiar impact on Europe of the Judeo-Christian worldview. Dixon says this, this idea of humility was never seen, really seen, as a virtue until an event that took place 2,000 years ago. Now, you have hints of it, he would say, in the Old Testament. You do have hints of it in the Old Testament. But it, the world was transformed most poignantly 2,000 years ago through this person, Jesus Christ. Jesus, what does he say? Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So Jesus is teaching that his, his, that his, telling us that his teaching is not burdensome. It has a lightness to it. And he makes reference to himself as humble. Now again, you have to realize, in the first century, humility was the stuff of slaves. They were the lower orders. They were the, the bottom. This is not something a rabbi should say. Jesus says, whoever wants to be great among you must also be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. Think about that language, must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. True greatness, according to Jesus, requires self-sacrifice. But those are his words. Listen. Listen to this. It was Jesus' execution and his followers' attempt to make sense of his execution that really turned the world upside down. Now, we're so used to this. We talked about that. We see crosses everywhere. We see crosses on churches, crosses on earrings, crosses as tattoos, crosses as necklaces, crosses on walls. But, the, but crucifixion in the ancient world, just as a reminder, was a sunum supplicium, the ultimate punishment. And crucifixion was designed to bring, think of the language, ultimate shame. Maximum suffering and maximum humiliation. And so that's what puzzled the early followers of Jesus. How could the greatest man who ever lived die such an ignominious death? What matters here is how the early Christians looked at the cross. And they begin to rethink the whole shame-honor thing. And they begin to wonder whether or not the honor really was the proof of merit and shame as was evidence of one's worthlessness. Because it doesn't make sense. Here you have Jesus, the greatest man that's ever been, dying the most shameful death a person could ever die. Doesn't make sense. And so Christians were left with two options. Option number one, either Jesus was not as great as they originally thought, therefore that's why he had to die that way, or that greatness needs to be redefined. And greatness somehow needs to be connected to this shameful ending. 
Now, guys like Celsus and others eh, who oppose Christianity, they, they love the fact that Jesus died such a horrific death. They mocked it. Celsus, he is ruthless in mocking the fact. You guys follow somebody who died like this? What are you, stupid? We saw the graffiti on the wall. Alexemenus worships his God, and his God is on the cross, and he's got, a, he's got an ass's head. It's like, what kind of fool would worship an ass who dies this way? But Christians took a different option. To them, the crucifixion of their Lord, Jesus Christ, is something really powerful. For them, crucifixion was not evidence of Jesus' humility, humilitas, but rather Jesus' greatness in humility. And so true greatness is now found in the noble choice to lower oneself for the sake of others. And the world's never been the same again. Now, in light of everything that we've been saying as we've been walking through this, listen, listen to Paul's words. Listen to how they stand out. Okay, Paul says these words. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not consider count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, a slave, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Philippians 2. Now this passage, in light of what we've been saying, you see how powerful this is. Because it's talking about humility, and greatness, and the cross, all in one breath. I love what John Dixon says. He says, the idea that any great individual, let alone the Almighty, could be associated with a shameful Roman crucifixion is just bizarre. Contemporary Christians may find the thought easy enough, but that's only because 2,000 years reflection on the, of this narrative. Western history is now utterly cruciform. It is shaped by the event of Jesus' crucifixion. And so what we see in this passage is revolutionary. It's a Christian revolution that has turned humility upside down. Honor and shame are turned upside down. The highly honored Jesus Christ died the most shameful of deaths and as a result becomes an object of exaltation and honor. And so honor has been redefined. How? What does it mean to be honorable? It is a person who forgoes his honor to embrace shame for the good of others. And so greatness must now lie in humble service to the benefit of others. This is powerful, guys. This is so important. Because every one of us, oh, it's good to be humble. Oh, I like this humble person. This, it's something that we aim for. We want to be humble. But humility is only something of value because of this event that took place 2,000 years ago. It never was before that. And still isn't in some cultures. Do you guys know the story of Edmund Hillary? Do you know who he is? Who's Edmund Hillary? Yeah, he climbed Mount Everest, yeah. He's the first one, right, to climb Mount Everest? Yeah. Story goes is when he gets to the top of Mount Everest, do you know what he does? He buries something there. A crucifix. This tiny crucifix. Now, why does he do this? We're not sure, but it, it, we look at that and we're like, wow, that's kind of cool. One of the greatest achievements symbolized by a person who went to the lowest depths.
Now, what we know is for sure that if Edmund Hillary was living in the first century and climbed to the top of the mountain, it would be absolutely foolish to put the symbol of a cross at the top of the mountain. It's like, what are you doing? Erect a statue of you, Sir Edmund Hillary. In our mind, it makes sense. But in the ancient world, it made no sense. There's another story of Edmund Hillary. I, I love this story. There's this story that um, he was, uh, I don't know, he, I guess he was in Nepal or something like that. And, and some younger people saw him. Um, this is like years later. And they're like, oh, it's Edmund Hillary. It's Edmund Hillary. And so they all gather around. They said, can we get a picture with you? And he's like, sure, yeah, I'll take a picture of you. That's fine. And so they're all standing together. And they say, oh, you know what would be so cool is if you had this mountain climbing pick in your hand, you know, because, you know, you're a mountain climber. He goes, sure, okay. So he's holding it, and he's posing for a picture. And then somebody comes up, didn't know who he was. He goes, uh, excuse me, um, you're holding that wrong <laughs> to Edmund Hillary. He goes, you're actually, up to, it, it, it should be held this way. And Edmund Hillary looked, he goes, oh, thank you so much. And he turns it around. And everybody saw that. And they're like, there's something about that. There's something so winsome about that. That was the Roman world. Be like, how dare you say such a, do you not know who I am? Like that, that would be your response. This idea of humility just takes off. Now, what I thought I'd do just... Time is it? 818. Oh, I think we were okay. I thought just for fun, I would leave you. This actually has nothing to do with the theme of the class, but I, I was reading the book and John Dixon at the end, he goes, here's some, here's some steps to cultivate humility in your life. I'm like, oh, I'll share this with you guys today. So this is how we're going to end. I, I'll, I'll, I'll lay out what, uh, what, what Dixon writes. How can I cultivate humility in my life? Well, Dixon lays out uh, five, five ideas. He says, one, we need to be recognized that we are shaped by what we love. So look for humility and love it and emulate it and avoid things that bring out the worst in you. Now, you think about that. Well, what are some of the things that bring out the worst in you? <laughs> people. <laughs> Stay away from people. <laughs> Bad drivers, yeah. <laughs> like, for, for me, in my, back, in my background, so, when I was younger, before I was a Christian, I did a lot of martial arts, believe it or not. I did. I, so I, I did. My buddy and I, we had a, we had a karate club, and, and, and we, had, we, were, we were bad because we wore the black geese, not the white geese, and we thought we were so cool. And, and, and I really enjoyed martial arts. I did martial arts for, for years. Um, but then I became a Christian. And after I became a Christian, I went to a, there was a martial arts club that was happening, and I thought I'd join. But I realized that there's everything about martial arts that brought out everything really ugly in me because I was quite when I did march I was I was such an arrogant so-and-so and I would just yeah I did horrible things and when I when I um after I became a Christian I found myself going back to that kind of thing and I was like I can't do this anymore there's something about that world that still has a hold of my heart and I I just can't and so I, I gave I gave it all up and so you have to, you know, what is the thing that brings out the worst in you? And avoid that and, 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 and try to surround yourself with things that actually cultivate humility. Secondly, reflect on the lives of the humble. My favorite stories is C.S. Lewis. It's always C.S. Lewis. But Lewis was with his brother, and uh, they're walking to the bar, walking to the pub. <laughs> and uh, there's a guy begging on the side of the street. And uh, Lewis reached into his pocket and gave him his money. And his brother got mad at him. He goes, what are you doing? He's just going to use that to buy drink. And then Lewis says, well, that's what I was going to use it for. Uh, <laughs> and it was just a picture of, of you know, it's just a, a self-awareness. Self 
So look for people who have a good sense of humor and who don't take themselves too seriously and reflect on their life. And then, thirdly, conduct thought experiments to enhance humility. Um, think about the people that you're mad at or that you're arguing with or that you're debating with online and, and, and put yourself in their shoes and think the best of them rather than thinking the worst of them. Fourthly, I love this, act yourself into a state of being. Don't wait till you're feeling humble. <laughs> Just act humble. And who knows, your heart may change. Your heart may follow. And then finally, and I love this, forget about really trying to be humble because it's an indirect virtue. Nobody really, really tries to be humble, will really become humble. It's kind of an indirect thing. And this is what C.S. Lewis says. I'll leave you with this. He says, do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be a, a sort of greasy, smarmy person who's always telling you that, of course, he's a nobody. Probably all you'll think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. If you do dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. If anyone would like to acquire humility, I can, I, can, I think, tell him the, the first step. The first step is to realize that one is proud. And a biggish step, too. At least nothing whatever can be done before it. If you think you are not conceited, it means you are very conceited indeed. <laughs> anyway, I, just, I thought I'd leave you with that. Thanks for participating in this class. If you've been engaging in classes online, but you're not a part of a church community, we would love to have you join us. You can go to cachurch.ca to find out more about getting involved in the life and mission of CA Church.